Hi, Betfolio Voice listeners. Welcome back. On this episode, sponsored by Neogen, the makers of ThyroCare, an FDA-approved replacement therapy for diminished thyroid function in dogs, we're talking with Dr. Laura Van Vertloo about canine hypothyroidism. Now, I'll be honest, I was a little nervous when we started this podcast that maybe I was going to find out I've actually missed a bunch of hypothyroid diagnoses and was going to have a whole lot of homework to do afterwards. Good news, as best I can tell, that doesn't seem to be the case, but we did talk about how hypothyroidism does sometimes have a straightforward presentation, but other times presentation is a little more ambiguous. Dr. Van Vertlu is here with some great tips on how to spot a patient with hypothyroidism and the steps to take to confirm your diagnosis. Dr. Van Vertlu is an assistant professor of internal medicine at Iowa State University College of Veterinary Medicine. She graduated from Iowa State University and subsequently completed an internship and residency training at Purdue University. She became a diplomate of the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine in 2015. All right, let's jump in with some tips on canine hypothyroidism. All right, so we're here talking to Dr. Laura Van Vertloo about hypothyroidism today. Laura, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Yes, we're so excited to have you. We're talking, like I said, about hypothyroidism. So let's just start from the beginning. What is hypothyroidism? Can you talk to us about what it is and then also what causes it and how it normally presents in our patients? So hypothyroidism is something that we mostly see from a small animal standpoint in dogs, although it rarely affects cats as well. It is a disorder in which the thyroid gland fails to secrete T3 and T4, so our normal thyroid hormones, very similar to hypothyroidism in humans as well. So the cause is either poorly understood or multifactorial, but it seems to be in in dogs that most cases are termed primary hypothyroidism, which means the system failure is at the level of the thyroid gland itself rather than upstream. So problems with the pituitary gland or the hypothalamus. And so the cases that have been investigated the best, it appears to be an autoimmune condition. So inflammatory, like lymphocytic, plasmacytic inflammation of the thyroid gland, and then ultimately thyroid gland failure and atrophy. So there are like two histologic characteristics. One is this lymphocytic plasmacytic thyroiditis, and then two is just idiopathic thyroid atrophy. And it's just not clear. Do some thyroid glands just atrophy without inflammation? Or are those cases caught way late in the disease after the inflammation is passed? It's not really clear. And it honestly probably doesn't matter because the therapy and the prognosis is the same for it. So because the thyroid hormones affect virtually every body system, there's really like a wide ranging presentation that these dogs can have. And it can be ranging from extremely subtle to the opposite end of the spectrum to a really, really dramatic loss of function of multiple organ systems. But the most common clinical presentation is some kind of dermatologic change or changes. So these dogs will have changes to their hair coat, alopecia. They may have increased susceptibility to ear and skin infections. They can have weight gain. It is unfortunately probably an overdiagnosed disease when it comes to weight gain because there are 
a whole bunch of other different problems that lead to weight gain in dogs that have nothing to do with thyroid status, but in general, weight gain in the absence of an increase in appetite or inappropriate caloric intake happens in the majority of dogs with hypothyroidism. And then less commonly, we'll see a plethora of other different effects. So like they can present with neuropathies, vestibular signs, paraparesis or tetraparesis. They can present with bradycardia, lethargy, the classic hypothyroid dog is lethargic and heat-seeking, but it, these different manifestations are, are really variable, and a lot of it has to do with what the owner is observing in the dog. That makes sense. And I want to go back to what you said about it being an overdiagnosed condition when it comes to weight gain in dogs, because this is something that I've always struggled with because you always wonder, right? You're like, you know, the owners say they're not eating any more food and stuff. And you're always like, are they, or are they not? And Basically, my question is we hear about dogs whose blood work shows a low thyroid, but who may not actually be hypothyroid. So why do we see this and how do we distinguish who is hypothyroid and who we should be treating and then who's not? So the frustrating thing about diagnosing hypothyroidism is that we typically start with appropriately start with a total thyroxine or a total T4 on like usually senior wellness or screening blood work. And it's a good test because it's going to catch the vast majority of dogs that are truly hypothyroid and it's relatively budget friendly and easy to do. But the problem with the total T4 is that there are an enormous number of different factors that can cause a falsely decreased total T4. And so what we tell practitioners, what we tell our students that we're training is to absolutely never diagnose a dog with hypothyroidism based on a low total T4 alone, because that total T4 is influenced by breed, diurnal variation. It can be influenced by age. There are a whole bunch of different drugs that dogs may be currently on or were recently on that's going to suppress total T4 as well. And then, of course, something that we run into a lot is if there is any kind of concurrent disease process that really, really commonly will depress the total T4, even to the point that there are some studies that look at a low total T4 in unrelated illness as a poor prognostic indicator. So it's something that is thought to be adaptive in disease. But the problem is then if we have a dog that's not feeling well for other reasons that are not related to hypothyroidism, we see a total T4 that's low. A lot of times the knee-jerk reflex is to treat it, which is usually inappropriate. So when we're talking about these dogs with, you know, this, this sick euthyroid or, you know, coming back with this low total T4 for other reasons, what does that say to us as far as further testing goes? Should we request further testing in all dogs that come back with a low total T4 or are we looking for those who are symptomatic? How do we decide who to test further? I don't personally recommend additional testing unless I have a clinical suspicion with that low total T4. That said, I'm in a profession where I'm dealing with really complicated, sick internal medicine cases. And so it's really commonplace for me to get a total T4 on a senior panel that's low. And I'm like, yeah, well, of course it's low because of X, Y, and Z. And I ignore it. And I don't, I don't go further because I just, it's, it's not even on my radar diagnostically. I think in a dog that has more subtle signs of illness and the total T4 is low, certainly hypothyroidism, you want to be able to check some of those boxes and say, yeah, I'm suspicious because the skin's not right. The blood work is supportive of it. Speaking of which, there aren't a lot of 
really classic blood work abnormalities with hypothyroid dogs, but the majority will be hyperlipidemic, especially hypercholesterolemic. And about a third will have just a mild non-regenerative anemia. So I use those little pieces to try to help push me in one direction or the other. So anyway, backtracking a bit. So it's the dogs that I have a clinical suspicion for, or dogs that potentially have a recurrent, pretty significantly low total T4 on blood work where it's possible that they have some clinical signs that are so subtle that they've potentially been overlooked in the past. Okay. I feel like those are really easy. Well, easy guidelines to follow in terms of, you know, evaluate your patient and, and request further testing in light of clinical signs and clinical suspicions, or I love doing blood work, like senior blood work. I want it. I want it like starting young and to watch the trends and everything like that. So kind of emphasis on the importance of doing those regular panels and watching our trends with the T4 and cholesterol and all of these things. Can you tell us about the additional tests we would request if we suspected hypothyroidism? What kind of confirmatory testing would we request? My personal favorite is the, is the TSH. So thyroid stimulating hormone. So that's secreted by the pituitary gland to tell the thyroid gland to do its job. And since we're assuming that the majority of these dogs that are diagnosed with true hypothyroidism have thyroid gland failure, all of them should have a lack of negative feedback inhibition to the pituitary gland. And so their TSH should be abnormally high. So in people, the TSH is a really sensitive indicator of hypothyroidism in dogs, not so much. So the TSH is certainly not a magic bullet, like a magical diagnostic tool, but about two thirds of dogs with primary hypothyroidism will have a TSH above the reference interval. And there are very few cases of euthyroid sick syndrome or non-thyroidal illness that will result in a high TSH. So it's a really, really nice specific diagnostic. So if you have a low total T4 and a high TSH and compatible clinical signs, you can feel pretty darn confident that you have the correct diagnosis. So the other test that we reach for a lot is the free T4. And that one's really helpful because it is also much less influenced by non-thyroidal illness, drugs, et cetera, than the total T4. It's just not quite as specific of a test. So if you have the ability to honestly run all three, so if your total T4 comes back low and you can add on a free T4 and a TSH, the combination of those, so low total T4, low free T4, high TSH, or like a high normal TSH with compatible clinical signs is a really, really nice, both sensitive and specific set of diagnostics. There are certainly people who will rely on just a total T4 TSH. I do that a lot just because I have both of those tests in-house and so that's easy for me. There are also other individuals who with compatible clinical signs will simply run a free T4 in addition to the total T4. And if the two are low and you've ruled out other possible contributing factors, that alone is probably okay in a lot of cases too. So checking either a TSH or a free T4, but ideally checking all three values, the total T4, the free T4, and the TSH altogether. Yes. Yep. Okay. I mentioned that I love doing serial blood work panels and watching these trends over the years. Since we know that dogs can come back with a low total T4 and not be hypothyroid, why do we include these thyroid checks on our senior blood work? Like, is it just for the trends? I think that the total T4 that comes as a senior blood work 
test can get us in a lot of trouble. So I have at times questioned, like, why do we even do this? Because if we don't have clinical suspicion, why in the world are we running this test and spending this money and potentially resulting in overdiagnosis of dogs? But I certainly throughout my career so far have seen a few cases that started out with their hypothyroidism as manifesting is very in a very subtle way. And it was actually probably correctly initially overlooked by the primary veterinarian. They're like, well, okay, we saw this low total T4, but I don't really see any convincing clinical signs. Let's just monitor and see what happens. And so a case that really sticks out in my mind is one that was referred to me for poorly regulated diabetes. And this dog, I didn't think about hypothyroidism initially. He had kind of a rat tail appearance. He was sluggish. But other than that, there was just, he just also looked like a, a an unkempt, poorly regulated diabetic dog. And he was actually losing weight because his diabetes was so out of control. But then as we looked back at his blood work, his total T4 on this, these routine wellness checks over the past probably three years prior to him even being diagnosed with diabetes was unmeasurably low. And now that he was presenting with diabetes, the inclination of everybody was to say that, of course, that total T4 is low because he has, he has non-thyroidal illness. But we know that before he was even diagnosed with diabetes, his T4 was trending down. And so that provided us with the aha moment to say, hey, let's look into free T4 and TSH in this dog. TSH in this dog was sky high. He was very clearly on paper, a hypothyroid dog. And that was actually the cause of his unregulated diabetes. And he did phenomenally well once we finally recognized it and treated him. So I guess to summarize that story or to summarize that answer, it at least will turn something on in your head to say, oh, the total T4 is low. It's probably not important, but let's reevaluate this dog. Let's question the owner a little bit more. And then, yeah, we can see over time what happens. And then, yes, there are some dogs like for example, greyhounds that have a total T4 that falls below the reference interval. Thankfully, they're not a breed that's commonly affected by hypothyroidism. But if you have a, a younger, healthier greyhound and you know every time that dog's total T4 is low, then that can take that worry off of your mind when you see it low in the future. Absolutely. And I'm thinking of another case that I had where the T4 actually came back high and this was a head scratcher for me because it was in a dog and I definitely had to reach out to my local internal med specialist for some help with this one. What should our approach be if the T4 comes back high on our routine blood work? So there are a few things, some of them serious, some of them not that can cause a high total T4 in a dog. So Thankfully, unlike in the cat, true hyperthyroidism is very uncommon in dogs. And when it does happen, a lot of times what we think about is thyroid carcinoma. So if you have a young dog with no thyroid mass, probably you're going to be looking for other causes. But certainly if you do find an incidental high total T4, questioning the owner about any possible clinical signs of thyrotoxicosis is important. And also doing a really good thorough cervical palpation to see if you can appreciate a small thyroid mass. And if there is anything suspicious, then of course we, we CT and, and we, we dig into this deeper, but there have been reported in younger dogs in which thyroid adenocarcinoma is not on the table or has been ruled out like dietary hyperthyroidism. And that's usually associated with eating like 
actual thyroid tissue, usually in a raw food diet, but there are other case reports of dogs that have eaten even a commercial diet that has provided high levels of thyroid hormone that has caused dietary hyperthyroidism in both of those cases. So dietary hyperthyroidism and also hyperthyroidism secondary to adenocarcinoma, both of those cases, the dogs should be symptomatic. But we can also see a falsely high total T4 in dogs that have lymphocytic thyroiditis and their thyroid glands or their bodies are producing anti T4 autoantibodies. So this is not really common, but it certainly can happen. And that cross reacts with the total T4 and actually can cause it to be falsely high. And so the way to rule that out is the first thing I recommend when you get a high total T4, in addition to getting a good clinical history from the owner, is just get a free T4 and even see if it's real. So you have to get a free T4 that's done by the modified equilibrium dialysis technique. And what that does is that separates out those anti-T4 autoantibodies. And so those won't cross-react with your free T4 assay. So if your free T4 is normal or low, then that this is now you have something else to think about um, and you don't need to worry about that being high. And the answer is that it's the total T4 cross-reactivity with autoantibody. There is also an anti-T4 autoantibody test that you can do, but usually it's just more practical to get that free free T4. If your free T4 is truly high, then you need to look into is this cancer-related, true hyperthyroidism, or is it dietary? Interesting. That third one was not on my radar. I'm so glad that you talked about that one. I think the case that I'm thinking of ended up being a dietary issue, but yeah, I did not know. You said it was lymphocytic thyroiditis. Yeah. And the cool thing about that is actually those dogs, even if they have evidence of anti-T4 autoantibodies, that doesn't mean that they're going to be hypothyroid or even that they they will develop clinical hypothyroidism in the future. It just tells you, you can interpret a total T4 in this dog with those antibodies. Interesting. Interesting. What about the dog that we do confirm is hypothyroidism kind of going back to the hypothyroid dogs here. What are our treatment options in that case? So fortunately, treating dogs with hypothyroidism, once you are confident about the diagnosis, the diagnosis is the hard part. The treatment is the easy part. So we start them on supplementation with levothyroxine. And there are two FDA-approved products for dogs that are available. They are ThyroCare and ThyroTabs. And having looked at the data on both of them, they are both effective products in the management of canine hypothyroidism. And so typically, once we have our diagnosis, we'll start the dogs on twice a day treatment. And what we will do at that point is set owners up with the expectation that they're going to see improvement in clinical signs, oftentimes within the first couple of weeks. Some things like skin issues, of course, are going to take several months to resolve. And what you can actually see is sometimes worsening of alopecia over time as the body is getting used to being euthyroid again. But when we're monitoring blood work, we typically are looking for a total T4 within the upper half of the reference range to slightly above the reference range. And that's based on a timed blood sample. So usually about four to six hours after the morning dose. It is recommended to start dogs on twice a day dosing to begin with. And most dogs based on the literature will require twice a day dosing to maintain good clinical control of their disease. Some dogs you can reduce to once a day dosing. And I don't recommend doing that until they're euthyroid and they're in a good, in a good position. Owner wants to go for something more convenient. Try once a day dosing and see how they do. 
Also, this is a big thing in people who are hypothyroid, but they recommend administration of levothyroxine on an empty stomach. So ideally an hour to 30 minutes to an hour prior to eating food. For people, that's hard. For dogs with people administering their medications, that's even harder. So I tell my owners that, and if they can do it, the really motivated owners that I try to have them stay consistent with that. And certainly when we're monitoring our thyroid levels later, I want them to stay consistent with what they normally do. But some owners are like, I have time in the morning to feed my dog and give meds at the same time. And that's how it's going to be, in which case that's fine. We just recommend that they be consistent with that and we can dose adjust as needed. They are more morning people than I am. (laughs) What about communicating with clients when it comes to hypothyroidism? One of the things you mentioned before was having clinical endpoints that you want them to monitor, which I've found to be really important in communicating with clients. What are some other kind of key things that you think we should make sure we're including in those conversations? I think setting expectations even prior to the diagnosis about why we need to do follow-up testing. I think sometimes owners get frustrated when they're like, yeah, but I paid for this test. And I think hypothyroidism is one of those maybe unfortunate diagnoses because a lot of people have it or they know somebody who has it or the internet tells them they have a fat dog who must have a thyroid problem. And so they want to have the magical pill that's going to fix the dog's obesity or, or what have you, or lethargy or, or whatever they're perceiving as wrong with their dog. So I think it can be hard to convince the clients that there is the potential for harm if we overtreat with thyroid supplementation and to convince them of the importance of why we need these additional tests to feel comfortable with our diagnosis. So once we find something abnormal, hey, we need to have you spend a little bit more money with a free T4 TSH to decide whether or not this is something that we need to do. I've found, honestly, with most of my dogs that I've treated for hypothyroidism, the owners are usually really happy with the outcome because it's such a rewarding disease to treat when you're right. Not when you're, when you have a hunch and it's not hypothyroidism and bummer, they didn't get better or they felt okay for a couple of weeks. And then it turns out it was all just the placebo effect. But I think the hair coat is the thing that freaks most owners out. So just letting them know that that can take months. And also they're going to look worse before they get better. Once they have that information, I think they can really be comfortable with that. In the few neurologic cases that I've had, that's one that's a little bit tricky with setting expectations because you do see improvement, but seeing residual deficits. So like dogs with vestibular disease oftentimes have a great improvement in function, but may have a residual head tilt. After that, letting them know that some of those things don't ever fully go away is important so that they're not frustrated or disappointed later on. Absolutely. A lot of clear communication around this disease, because like you said, a lot of the signs can be subtle and the ones that aren't can, you know, take a long time to resolve and maybe not resolve fully. So making sure we're being really upfront with people. Well, Laura, this has been fantastic. Thank you for all of the wonderful information. Any other thoughts you'd like to share with us? Just to summarize a reminder for practitioners and our our veterinary nurses that this is both an underdiagnosed and I think sometimes overdiagnosed disease just because it's subtlety, but also the fact that we get confused with that total T4. But when you are using your brain and, and communicating effectively with the owner, it can be very, very rewarding to treat. 
Absolutely. And you made me feel so much better about it. Cause I've always felt that way. I'm like, what do I do with this total T4? It's, it doesn't seem cut and dry. So I was hoping that you weren't going to come on and say, no, it's cut and dry. And I've been missing something this whole time. It makes me feel better to know about those subtleties there. Not at all. It's very frustrating. <laughs> well, thank you again for joining us. This has been great. All right, guys, hope you're armed with some great information about when to suspect hypothyroidism and how to diagnose it. Thank you so much to Neogen, the makers of ThyroCare, an FDA-approved replacement therapy for diminished thyroid function in dogs, for making this episode possible, and to Dr. Van Vertloo for joining us. For more episodes like this, click on the Education tab on the Vetfolio website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this episode, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day. It's a great day.